Hey, good morning, citizens. Uh, please, if you have a Bible or if you have your phone, turn to Psalm chapter 3. We're going to be looking at that uh, portion of Scripture this morning. I hope that you're doing well. Um, we're in our third week now of this study in book one of Psalms, which is 42 chapters, but we're just going to get through a portion of that uh, in this series. Psalm 3 is really the beginning of the book of Psalms. If you'll remember from the first uh, two sermons, chapter 1 and chapter 2 are like the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. Okay, they, they help set the stage and orientate the reader to what, um, you know, to all that's going to come in each of the chapters. So in chapter 1, if you'll remember, we had this imagery of the wicked and the blessed and the blessed were the ones who, you know, had a life that was marked by um, the study of the law of God, the Torah. And it was, you know, meant to be a part of their daily routine. It was to be meditated on. And the result of that would be a life of blessing, um, you know, in, in all circumstances. Then last week, Dustin took us through chapter 2, which which um, pointed us to this Messiah, this, this coming hope of a, a messianic reign of God. And, and God, it says, like laughs at the world's attempts at ruling and reigning and, you know, countries taking over other countries. God laughs at those things because he says, someday in the future, the hope is coming of a Messiah, of a king, of the Son of Man who will rule and all the nations you know, you go to any nation around the world, all the nations will one day worship this king, which is Jesus. And then we come to Psalm 3. And Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann says this in his commentary on, on Psalm 3. He says, this articulation, he's talking about Psalm 3, this articulation of need and petition is jarringly in tension with the assurances offered at the beginnings of Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 3 is kind of like a shocking start to the book. It's like chapter 1 and chapter 2 were so hopeful and so like spectacular. And now we come to chapter 3, which is just, it's down. It's lament. It is confusion and hurt and questions and, you know, all kinds of problems and overwhelming pain. You know, I don't know what your favorite stage is of kids, but there is a beauty to the toddler stage, okay? Whether it was your own kids or maybe, you know, your kids right now are in that stage, or maybe it was nieces or nephews or just uh, friends that have children. The toddler stage is awesome because problems are actually pretty simple and finding solutions to the problems is usually pretty simple as well. But I remember when our kids were toddlers, I mean, it was like daily tears multiple times a day, right? There's just like always problems. It's either like fighting with friends or fighting with siblings, or maybe it's just like the world is terrible. They've fallen off of a, you know, off of a bicycle or they've crushed an ant by accident. Like whatever it is, there's some sort of problem and, and they come to you, you know, in tears, their cheeks. Sometimes the tears are just hanging off the edges of their cheeks and they need help. And they need solutions. And part of your role as um, aunt or uncle or mom or dad is to figure out, like, what happened? What's the backstory here? 
especially if it's between two siblings or two friends, you're like, what is going on? You know, what has happened? What is the backstory? Well, when we come to Psalm 3, we discover that it's a psalm that is coming out of the context of deep hurt and pain. Maybe even a good way to say it is like overwhelming hurt and pain. There is a problem. Now, the Bible does not sugarcoat the stories or the characters within it. It is um, raw and honest. It is real. It's not like, um, you know, some people, some people call it a fairy tale or, you know, it's fantastical. It might be fantastical, like, in that it's amazing some of the circumstances that happen or that come about, but it is the real, raw things of life. It doesn't hold back, even when it comes to the, to the main characters, you know, or to some of the most prominent figures within it. It does not cover up their problems and their issues. Now listen, we live in a day and age where we all want to put our best foot forward. I mean, you look at Instagram, you look at any social media, people are putting their best pictures out there, unless it's like fail compilations on um, YouTube or something, you know, those are usually other people. But, you know, there are companies out there, like you can Google this, there are companies out there that will clean up your history. You know, if you made some poor choices as a teenager and you posted those on Facebook or Instagram, or maybe you had a blog back in the day and you wrote some stuff and you're like, oh man, I need to get rid of that, like, bad bit of my history. They will go back there and they will do all kinds of you know, search engine modifications so that when, you know, you go to start that next job or you go to that job interview and that company searches your name on Google or they search your name on Facebook, the bad stuff will be gone. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives us the raw and the real reality behind the people that lived and who followed God to their success and to their failure. Think of it. Think of Abraham, father of the nation of Israel. Um, just multiple stories of this guy who failed and he lied to people and he, you know, lied about his wife and hid behind her all out of fear. You think of Jacob, who also was like a deceiver and deceived his father and, you know, deceived his, his family members and he's just known to be like a problem maker his basically his whole life. God still continues to use him. Think of Rahab, who's in the genealogy of Jesus, who was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Or think of Jonah, who we've kind of, you know, become familiar with as we studied him in the fall, who hated his mission field and where he was going and the people that he was to go to and to share the, the good news with. He just couldn't stand them. Or the disciples. You look through the Gospels and you see the disciples who were angry, fearful, and in Jesus's most desperate moment, uh, abandon him. The Bible is not just a great, you know, fancy kind of story. It's not just a fairy tale. It is the real life of men and women who followed God, who were imperfect, and who had problems. So when we come to Psalm 3, this psalm of overwhelming pain and of lament to God, we need to understand what is its background. Let's read the first two verses of Psalm 3. It says this, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? 
Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Okay, so even if you didn't know the background to that psalm, you can read those first two verses and say, something's going wrong here. Some, some sort of problem has come to David. You know, he is experiencing some sort of trouble. And usually when it comes to trouble, it's not just one thing. There's like layers to the trouble, right? Any of the problems that we have, they tend to be like multi-layered. It's not just one thing. There's like a lot going on. And in Psalm 3, if you look at your Bible, probably like most of our Bibles, there'll be a heading at the top of the psalm that says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So if you want the full backstory to what this psalm is addressing and out of what context this psalm is coming, I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel, uh, probably starting in chapter 13 all the way to like chapter 18. Okay, and I'm just going to do a quick summary of that story here, but you can get the full detailed picture in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 13, David is king at that time, and David has many wives, many concubines, and he's got, you know, different children with each of those. And the story arises that his one son, Amnon, is uh, in love, is like, um, almost like stalking David's daughter, Tamar. Now, they're, they're from different mothers, okay? They have the father, David, but they're from different mothers. And so Amnon ends up in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel raping Tamar. It's a, it's a gruesome story. And Absalom hears about this. Absalom is Tamar's brother. Same mother, same father. David's their father. And so Absalom hears about this, and he flips, his, you know, he just loses it, okay? He just loses it completely. It's his sister who has been violated. And David hears about it as well and is also, like, angry about this and, and sees the, the terror of what's just happened, but he doesn't really do anything. What Absalom does is he kind of holds that inside, that rage and that anger inside, and as the story develops, it comes to the day where he finally takes his vengeance and he kills his half-brother Amnon for raping Tamar. David hears about this, and David is also angry at Absalom for taking this justice into his own hands. And so David says, get out of my city, get out of, you know, out of my area, my sphere of influence, stay away from me. And so for three years, there's this separation of Absalom and David, but Absalom is the whole time, he's like, Father, please take me back. Please let me come back. Finally, the story works out where Absalom is allowed to go back to Jerusalem. But David says, you can be in Jerusalem where I am, but we are not going to interact at all. You stay in your house. I'm going to stay in my place, in my palace. And so they are separated. And as that time transpires over months and months, Absalom begins to undermine the authority of David. Okay, he slowly begins to win people over to him. So people, what they would normally do is they would come to the city of Jerusalem and they would come to, you know, with the intent of speaking to King David to get his wisdom on maybe issues of conflict or with just some questions related to the kingdom. And as they're coming into the city, Absalom is kind of stopping them early in the morning and he's starting to undermine the, the kingly position of David. It says this in 2 Samuel 15. Absalom is saying this, he says, See, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, 
Oh, that I were the judge of the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, this is a key line here, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So this is what Absalom is doing. He's eroding the power of David as king, and he's slowly winning the people over to himself. It ultimately you know, comes to its crescendo when he has this massive party in Hebron with 200 other men. He wins over David's greatest counselor, Ahithophel, this man who's been like walking with David for years and years, giving David good counsel, has been a close friend. Absalom wins him over and ultimately, um, you know, back then they would blow a trumpet and they would announce this new king and he says, I am king. David hears about this and he says, I'm now a hunted man. You know, there's a new king. It's his own son who's done this. And so David leaves some of his uh, concubines in Jerusalem to take care of his palace. He takes his most trusted people. He even leaves a counselor there to kind of sabotage the work of Absalom. And then he heads out on the road, not knowing where he's going. And on the road, okay, if that wasn't enough, all that's happened with his son, in the family, with the kingdom, on the road, he runs up against this man uh, named Shimei. And Shimei is there. He's, he's part of Saul's family. He's a descendant of Saul. And he mocks David as he's going by. Shimei says this in 2 Samuel 16, verse 6. And he threw stones at David and at the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. That's what Shimei is, is yelling from the side. He's throwing stones. He's mocking David in David's like, you know, moment of pain and discouragement. Now listen, <clears throat> I know there's a lot of details um, in this story, a lot of names I just threw out there. Um, but listen, it's so important for us to know the background to this psalm, to this psalm of lament. It's so important for us to understand all the things that went on in David's life and to think about, just to think about the pain that David is going through, the overwhelming trouble that he's feeling. Now imagine this, his... And maybe you don't even have to imagine it. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. The pain of Absalom, a, a wayward son who's choosing like a path of personal vengeance and uh, choosing to go against his family and against those that he loves just for his own ambitions. Even though his ambitions started like righteously. with He wanted justice for Tamar, his sister, and yet it ends in destruction. Think of the loss of a trusted friend like Ahithophel. You know, this counselor, someone who'd been with him for years that he'd known, and now it's disintegrated. The friendship is over. It's broken. Think of Shimei. I'm, I'm assuming Shimei is a random person for David. Maybe he knew of him because of family connections, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, like, you know, personal friendship or family kinship, but there's just this person on the side mocking and discouraging David. Or it's just the hardness of the whole situation, like looking at the hardness of everything that he's facing and discouragement is set in. Out of all this pain, 
comes Psalm 3. And the reason why it's so important to understand the background is because our lives as well are filled with different forms of pain and discouragement. That's what makes the Psalms so relatable for so many of us. We have found ourselves in different forms of trouble. And if, if we haven't, it's probably coming at some point, right? And often it's not just one trouble. It's like multiple troubles. Like David here has multiple layers of trouble. And this is the case for us too. I mean, we've probably all heard of people or maybe we've experienced, you know, someone has something devastating happen in their life. And in that same week, you know, they're like basement floods or their transmission goes. It's like trouble after trouble after trouble. And so what is David's first response? His first response is prayer. His first response is to pray. Look at verse 1 again. Verse 1 says, O Lord. He talks to God, okay? And that's what prayer is. He talks to God. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me. And verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. David, in his moment of desperation and difficulty, goes to God in prayer. But what kind of prayer is this? And this is really important for us to see. The kind of prayer that it is, is honest prayer. This is not just trite, simple little words. It is honest prayer. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. This is what David is saying to, to God. He's saying, I'm so thankful you can, like, kick the teeth of Shimei right in. Okay? You can, like, hurt Ahithophel. You can slap him in the face. David is brutally honest. But if you think this is the only place that this happens, it's not. Look at Jesus even. In Hebrews chapter 5, now Jesus's life is marked by prayer. But in Hebrews 5, it says this, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's how Jesus prayed at times. With total honesty, you know, he was a, a man who also was um, troubled and had um, difficulties around him. And in those moments, it says that he loudly cried. He had tears. He was like just full-on emotions expressing them to God in his prayers. Honest prayers. Listen, before authenticity was cool. You know, you read all kinds of articles about Gen Z and millennials. Never read articles about Gen X, you know, wanting this, but I think everybody wants to some degree authenticity. You know, they want honesty. They just want the raw truth. Before any of that was popular, before any articles were written about that, the Word of God recorded it for us. Honesty and prayers in the overwhelming pain of life. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, calls these simple prayers, okay? And he says this, In simple prayer, we bring ourselves before God just as we are, warts and all. Like children before a loving Father, we open our hearts and make our requests. We do not sort things out, the good from the bad. We simply and unpretentiously share our concerns and make our petitions. That's what we see in Psalm 3. David is in overwhelming pain. He is in just, his heart is broken in so many ways. And what does he do? He takes it to God. 
And in full honesty, he just gives everything to God. And listen, you can do that with maybe a close friend, um, maybe like a really close friend, but sometimes even the things that we're saying from our heart, you know, our friends would be like, whoa, you are going too far there. It sounds like you want to like kill someone or hurt someone. That sounds like sinful. And, and deep friends, close friends may not be able to handle this kind of stuff, but God can handle it. God can hear these things. God is not offended by these things. God actually knows when that is righteous anger and when that is sinful anger, and he still can take it in. And it says in Scripture that the Holy Spirit actually takes our groanings and our prayers, and he makes them clear to God. So in our prayers, in our overwhelming pain in the struggle of life, we are called to, with clear honesty, with clear conscience, take those to God. Just take them to God. And the result then, the result of taking these prayers to God is promises that David actually gives to us as a gift. And we're going to kind of just look at four promises from the scripture to end our, uh, end this sermon together. So four promises that we're given that are the result of, you know, these times of prayer and honesty to God and that David actually clings to in this season of overwhelming pain and difficulty. Let's read verse 3. Verse 3 says this, right in the middle of this chapter, it says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Then all the way down to verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Four promises here for us to take. The first one, that God is our protection. Okay, so David says here, he uses this imagery of a shield. Okay, he says that in verse 3, that you are a shield about me. You know, David is using imagery that is really familiar to the people of this time period. And even to the first century um, believers, less so for us maybe. But like, we do understand because we've seen pictures of a shield. And a shield is something that is, you know, can protect you, but only protects you from one direction, right? If you're holding it in front of you, it's going to protect you from anything coming at you from the front. But if something's getting you from behind, you got to turn around and cover your back. Or if it's coming from the side, you got to turn to the side. But here, the image of God's protection is a total coverage all around us. It's total protection. Total protection. Not just from one side, it's from all sides. It says, you are a shield about me, around me. You are totally protecting me. Now, David is not saying this from a, a position of total comfort, okay? David is not saying this while he's tucked up in his room, all safe. Everything's good. There's no problems around him. No, David is actually saying this in the midst of hardship in the midst of this overwhelming pain. And often, as individuals, as, as believers, we don't totally understand God's protection until we actually go through the deepest hardships of life. Now, I know none of us wants to hear that. I don't want to hear that. None of you probably want to hear that. But to experience this kind of protection, total protection, it is in the midst, it's actually right in the middle of hardship where we experience this protection. I've known a number of people 
who have gone through extremely different, difficult hardships. Maybe they've lost a loved one suddenly, or maybe they've gotten that call that it's this illness that they've gotten, or maybe, you know, they've just received word that they've got cancer in a certain part of their body, and they have expressed to me directly or to others around them that God is protecting them and keeping them in the midst of that difficulty. Like, not, like never ever have they experienced that before, except for in that moment of hardship. David even says it himself in verses 5 and 6. He says this, I lay down, remember this, the context is he's being chased by Absalom. He's being kicked out of his, his own city. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's the context. And David says, I'm able to like sleep in the midst of that difficulty. Why? Because God is my protection. 1 Peter 5, 19 also says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's, according to God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter says, man, in the middle of your suffering, entrust your soul to God. He is your protection. And so we're left with that promise that God is our protection, even in the midst of difficulty. Second, God is our glory. Okay, we may not, we may not say that very often, but, you know, God is our glory literally means, you know, glory means weight. So understanding who God is, is this real experiential presence in our lives. You know, if you want to experience something, it's, it's, at least at a basic level, you need to look at it or observe it or experience it in some way. So if you want to, you know, experience the weight and the, the majesty of like El Capitan in Yosemite, this, you've probably seen pictures of this beautiful mountain, you know, with um, straight hundreds of feet of straight face that, you know, only the bravest climbers climb. How do you experience that? Well, you can see it on Instagram or you can follow, you know, the U.S. Park Service on Instagram or on their website, see videos. But to go there, to literally experience it in your life is the weight of El Camino, right? El Capitan, sorry. It's the weight of experiencing it. And this is what we are called to do. And we're called to do it how? Because God isn't like here around me. I can't like hold his hand. We're called to rehearse his glory through his word first and then through the experience of your life. Okay? You rehearse the glory of God through his word first and then through the experience of your life. And that order is actually really important because our experiences can be misinterpreted, can be misunderstood. You know, um, a lot of like cults, that's actually how they start, right? They start with someone having some sort of vision or some sort of experience, some sort of crazy magnificent thing that happens in a cave usually. And then from that, they create this, you know, this movement. And we're called as believers not to start with experience, but actually to start with the Word of God. Because God has revealed Himself to us through the Scriptures. That's what Psalm 1 was saying, meditate on God as He's revealed Himself. But we also need to experience him in life. We need to have those markers that we can look back and say, God was there. And God was there. 
You know, when the children of Israel finally came out of the wilderness and were going to enter into the promised land, they, pro- they passed over the, um, the river Jordan that was dried up, and God said, each tribe, take a stone from the middle of that river and then make that pile on the other side so that you can point back to that pile of rocks. It is to be a marker in your life of that time where you experienced God meeting your needs. So, God is our glory. The weight of experiencing God through his scriptures, through his word, and then through the the marked points in our lives where God has been with us. Through the, the joys and through the valleys, he's been there. We mark those out. Thirdly, that God is the lifter of our head. It says, and the lifter of my head in verse 3. God is the one who picks us up. It's a beautiful picture. You know, maybe this is a little too raw for Leafs fans, but the other night when the Canadians beat the Leafs in game seven, there was a shot from the the camera on the screen, and it showed the, the Leafs bench, and almost everybody, all the players, were sitting there as the clock ticked down with their heads down, which totally makes sense. We would all be there as well. They were discouraged. They were physically tired. They were probably angry. And the only thing they could do is hang their heads. And the image here is is meant to get us thinking about a child coming to their father in discouragement with tears and their head is down. And the child literally is, you know, totally discouraged and the father is lifting up their chin and saying what? It doesn't say here what God would have said to him. But maybe it was something like this from Isaiah 43.1. Maybe God would have said something like this. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Maybe that's what God said to David. And maybe that's what God is saying to you today. Maybe you're at a point in your life where your head is down. And Psalm 3 is saying, God is the lifter of your head. And what he wants you to know is that you are his. He has called you by name. You are his. You are his possession. But you're not just like a thing that he owns. You're not just like a book on the shelf. You are part of his family. The lifter of your head has brought you into his family. You are a daughter and you are a son of his. He marks you. He is the one who gives you identity. So those who would discourage you, those who would, you know, call you names, those who would point to events in your life where you failed, you did this, you know, you're no good, you, you caused problems, you're a troublemaker. God says, I am the one who calls you by name. I am the one who lifts your head. And in the midst of overwhelming pain and discouragement, David sees the lifter of his head as God. And then lastly, number four, he is our salvation, as it says in verse 8. So even though David is hearing the opposite, look at verse 2. It's saying that people are saying to David, and then it's in quotations, there's no salvation for him, for David in God. I kind of imagine that's one of the lines that Shimei yelled out to David. There is no salvation for this guy in God. There's none. And now we come to the end Verse 8, the promise is there. David says, you know what? That voice, that's a lie. The real truth is that God is my 
salvation. And the point there is not that, you know, David's not saying, okay, now that I got my kingdom back, God's my salvation. Or now that I got my best friend back, God is my salvation. No, the point is he, God, he is our salvation. Or as the NIV puts it, from the Lord comes deliverance. God is the focus. God is the one who saves. It's from him that our salvation comes. So he's our protection. He's our glory. He's the lifter of our head, and he is our salvation. Let's conclude with, with this. You know, I, I've read this week uh, a lot about, you know, lament and discouragement, and, and, you know, I've heard one author describe the Christian life as a valley of tears. And maybe that's just a good description for life, a valley of tears. It's difficult and hard. But we're called to, as believers, to look to Jesus. And it's something that Jesus actually spoke to his disciples. In John 16, verse 20, he says this. And this is as he's going to the cross, right? This is before he's going to be crucified. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. He says, here's what's coming, guys. Here's what's coming around the corner. You're going to weep and lament. And not only that, he says this, but the world will rejoice. They are going to be loving what they're seeing the death of the Savior. He goes on and he says, you will be sorrowful, but, and that's such a key word, he says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And that kind of promise, and the promises that were given in Psalm 3 are what we are called to hang on to in the midst of the deepest, darkest storms of life. John Owen, who is a Puritan, who was a Puritan minister, sorry, it was in the 1600s, he's not anymore, um, but he had a life filled with pain. He had 11 children, and he outlived all of them. Can you imagine that? Outlived all of his children. And he wrote this regarding pain in life and the promises of God. He says this, If we are satisfied with vague ideas about God, we shall find no transforming power communicated to us. But when we cling wholeheartedly to him, and our minds are filled with thoughts of him, and delight in him, then spiritual power will flow from him to purify our hearts, increase our holiness, strengthen our graces, and sometimes fill us with joy inexpressible and full of glory. May that be the result of our clinging to the promises as well, not because of our faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these psalms of lament that take us into the real parts of life that are hard and painful and overwhelming. And yet, Lord, they give us promises and hope. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to cling to those and Lord, help each other to cling to them as well as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.